Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Game Audio Hour, a fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things game audio, from creative ideas to the latest techniques, project experiences to audio secrets. Here is where you'll find in-depth coverage and opinions related to game audio. As always, or not always, but usually I'm Vincent Diamante. No, that's not the case at all. I am always Vincent Diamante, and I'm just hanging out over here in the web, throwing my voice out there into the internet ether. But I am not alone. I am here with Mike Shapiro. How are you doing? I am doing great. And I really did appreciate the philosophical tone that you had taken on just then. I mean, uh, none of us are truly alone, even though we all are in some fundamental sense. And hopefully our our listeners feel that they are not alone because we share many of their uh, tribulations and issues. and, And that's the bond we have with our listenership. Oh, totally. And there is a whole lot to share. I think one of the things that's really interesting about game audio is that It's so big that we don't always know exactly how much there is that we are really sharing or how much there is to further explore that is worth sharing with everyone else. Um, There's just so much with every single production or every single task that we undertake. And honestly, I'm really glad to explore that with with you. and. everyone else that's out there who I come into contact with. I'm looking forward to doing more of that over the coming months because it seems like things are moving forward when it comes to networking opportunities. Obviously, there's a lot of virtual stuff still on the horizon. For example, Game SoundCon is happening. Still in the virtual realm, I'm going to be using my VR headset in order to interact with people. But I think that there's also a lot of promise out there for 2022 and in-person meetups and just hanging out, shooting the proverbial shit with all the other people out there in the audio and music world. I think as game people... Uh, be we composers or sound designers or the, the people who work on games, we are better psychologically equipped than most of humanity for the kind of isolation and working from home and distance collaboration that's been going on. And yet, since we're also human beings, mostly, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, happiness when we all can get together again Um maybe GDC in 2022 or some other events like that. I think there's going to be just sort of a, an outpouring of, of joy as we get back to things that we took for granted a few years ago. Oh, definitely. There's a lot to be happy about. I mean, I'm really excited about things. I'm really excited about new possibilities. I kind of hinted at this in a previous episode, but I'm really excited about some new analog audio gear that is currently sitting on my desk. I've got a Rupert Neve Designs Master Bus uh, converter just staring at me with its plethora of red, yellow, and green lights. It's so cool. It is so, so cool. And I'm just having so much fun running tracks through it. I I wish I could let you guys listen in on this, but... um, you know, with, with the conversion and compression of podcasts, I'm not sure that the full uh, impact or effect will be had. But I'm really looking forward to some future games where the full effect will be enjoyed by players in the future. Well, I think it'd be interesting. I think we talked about this in prior episodes of you doing maybe an AB, um, you know, giving us a, a mix or two that's been run through your new magical box and then. Uh, a contrasting mix that isn't run through, but maybe having some kind of stereo bus um, mastering tool and putting them up in a double, well, I guess we can't really do a double blind way because you'll know which is which, but you know, putting up mix A, mix B uh, and letting people uh, anonymously listen in and see if they can hear a difference. Uh, some tests like that might be interested. Or if you don't like the laboratory style approach, you could just say, here's one of my Rupert Neve enhanced mixes and here's one of the old school mixes. Just tell them which is which and let them appreciate it. Yeah, I think that would be a great way to go, uh, especially with Alex, because I, 
I mean, I think I have okay ears. I don't think I have golden ears. I would suggest that Alex has really pretty fantastic ears. He's been able to do some very cool things, uh, mix and mastering wise, with a couple of tracks that I was working with him on actually in the last year. So I would love to get him in on this as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Alex has opinions of impressive specificity. Like I'll, I'll bounce a mix off of him and I'll say, Mike, uh, th there's some slight harshness around 4,300 hertz. And maybe you can just tame that. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll be really specific in his opinions in ways that are just beyond my perception. It's like he can see, it's like I'm a 16 color graphics card and he can see 4,096 colors, right? There's just a level of perception that I don't have and I'm in awe of. Yeah, I agree on that. I had that exact same experience where you would talk about something in that mid-bass or something with a particular instrument. And I and then I look at it and I think, oh, what he said is absolutely right and worth addressing. So <laughs> yeah, he's pretty cool about that. Whatever we do in terms of testing, he definitely needs to get in on this. Um, I actually have a couple of tracks that I am willing to throw out there that are not attached to a project that I think could be could be fun to mess with. So hopefully in the near future, that will happen. Now, for the benefit of those listeners who might not have been here an episode or two ago when you first mentioned this, do you want to give a really quick like 30-second description of what this box is and why you got it? Okay, yeah. So this is the Rupert Neve Designs Master Bus Converter. And it is ostensibly to take stuff in the analog domain and bring it into the digital world. Now, the funny thing is, I mostly work in the box. So what I'm doing is I'm taking all my stuff that's rendered by contact instruments and other VSTs, and then I'm spitting it out of my sound card, throwing it into this master bus converter, and then converting it to digital. But along the way, there are some other things that are there. There are things like makeup gain and limiting. And there is a very nice mastering limiting converter, uh, limiting compressor that's on board here that I can engage. Uh, there's also a, a transformer that you can put your mixes through, as well as this Neve Silk EQ that you can tune the harmonics that are added in either the lows or the highs. And it's all kind of magical and analog and indeterminate. And it's very, very good sounding. You do all this stuff in the analog domain before bringing it back in as a digital signal. And it's good. <laughs> it just makes things sound really, really good. So if you're familiar with some of my music, you know that I tend to do things with acoustic instruments or emulations of small and large orchestral forces. And I feel like the combination of this mastering limiter and the transformer with various values on the harmonics that are added actually makes what I'm trying to do with the orchestral emulation that much more convincing, that much more gelled together. And uh, it's an expensive box. It ends up being more than $3,000. I, I actually think it's worth it. I'm not going to recap our discussion uh, from two or three episodes ago, but I'm, you know, this kind of magic is something that many software plugin manufacturers have been trying to capture or to imply that they have captured, saying, oh, yes, we've, we've simulated the... Um, the patch bay at Abbey Road Studios. And it, this is that magical one step that you need to give all your mixes to make them sound great. And uh, to me, it's more believable that a hardware box would actually be able to sprinkle that magic on a mix. But I would love to hear at some point um, the, the AB between this and then some plugin that pretends to be something like that. And uh, I'm curious if someone with my you know limited perception can hear a difference, an improvement, and then I'm interested if someone with Alex's superhuman uh, abilities can hear a difference. So we should definitely put that on the agenda for future episodes. Yep, definitely. Alex, I know you're busy working on shipping a game, uh, but we're looking forward to hanging out with you again in the, <laughs> in the game Audio Hour realm, and we will have some fun listening to some music. 
Indeed. Another thing that's also worth noting, just as a final coda on that discussion, um, is that you know, unlike a plugin, a hardware box is persistently there, doesn't need to be instantiated, and doesn't drain your CPU at all. And I find that when I start to put a lot of plugins on my master bus, like the uh, Blackbox HD2, and then I start to do you know MIDI input, and now suddenly there's like this 50-second whatever latency. So I feel like I'm, I'm hearing an afterthought of everything I'm playing, or like there's a digital delay plugin with a very low setting. It, it, it does become a little bit um, bothersome. And often I have to do MIDI input with not much on the master channel because of that latency. This might have something to do with the fact that my computer is from 2013. But in any case, uh, regardless of the sonic quality, I also see the uh, the ergonomic advantage of not having to deal with any of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I have a pretty modern machine, and I still have that exact same issue. Um, I've got a an AMD-powered machine from 2019. And yeah, I am very hesitant to put stuff on my master until everything is done because MIDI tracking is just not feasible. Uh, if I have any of those uh, those fun master emulative plugins like you were referring to, I've got this Neve box and it's great. And I've got a lot of things that purport to do very similar things to it. Um, you know, console emulators, that HG2 plugin that you that you have, I have it as well. And I think it's very good. But there is a lot of latency that is added in order to make the processing the work with the way it does. So uh, tracking after that is in the path is just not a thing. No, I, I definitely um, envy the transparency of the solution that you've come to. Mm transparency oh that there's that another one of those fancy words that <laughs> I, I used to think so little of back in the day and now i'm starting to appreciate um now that i'm experiencing some more well crazy high-end hardware lately but i think that's another conversation i'm really excited to resume that when alex is back on with us here absolutely you know it's funny i got all this hardware and I told myself that I'm not going to be playing around with any more software or sound libraries this year. I just made this big investment. It's something that is kind of a level up to all of my existing gear, either my hardware romplers or my software libraries. So I'm just not going to be doing that. I'm not going to be adding on to my virtual orchestra, not going to be adding on any other effects plugins. I'm cool for now, but uh, what about you? Have you been playing around with anything lately? Well, I was lured into an upgrade uh, by the way that this usually happens, and that is a sale. Uh, East West has a sale on their new Opus edition of their venerable Hollywood Orchestra Library. And I believe that included the upgrade path, the, the discount applied to the upgrade path from the old school play-based uh, Hollywood Orchestra. So I looked at the price, I looked at some reviews, and I thought, yeah, sure, why not? I, I went into this thinking, you know, East-West is kind of, in terms of my personal usage, has fallen a little bit out of favor. And that's not to say anything about their popularity among composers generally. And I know that many new composers are, are enjoying the advantages of their subscription service, which I think may make some sense for people just starting out. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've we've had that discussion before. But speaking as someone who's kind of purchased everything East-West makes that I want, um, I haven't found myself really turning to them recently uh, for orchestral stuff. So I thought, I, I debated the value proposition of this upgrade, but decided it's cheap enough, and I saw a few feature descriptions uh, that made it compelling. And I thought I would give... Um, a preliminary impression of the experience of upgrading to the Opus edition of Hollywood Orchestra, uh, but a lot of which centers around the sample player, around the new Opus system, oh. rather than the actual new content. And I say that because I'm currently downloading the new content, so I can't act like as we speak, I'm literally downloading it. So um, I've, I've, I've downloaded the harp and the solo cello and one or two other things, but now my system is struggling to pull down the, the winds and, and all the other heavy hitters. 
But um, at first I looked at Opus, which is their new proprietary player, the successor to Play. And I looked at it with a certain amount of reluctance because, you know, deep in my heart of hearts, I want everything to be unified. I don't want to learn five or six, the nuances of five or six different player interfaces. Uh, if I'm browsing for something, I hate the idea of opening up, you know, Spitfire's custom thing and then... Um, Orchestral Tools has their, um, I forget what it's called, Coda, or all these things are named after some Italian musical term. And um, just when I'd gotten used to play after a decade, now East West is throwing that away and introducing yet another player. And uh, a further grumble is the fact that, you know, when you save channel strips or presets and logic, it embeds the player that you're using. So if I've got, a, you know, dozens and dozens of um of patches and logic, each of which is based on play, and I want to upgrade all my instrumentation, now I have to resave them with Opus instantiated. So what I'm, what I'm getting at is I was kind of going in with a mild prejudice and grumble before I even started looking at it. I can understand that. It's like, ah, uh, just adding on more and more stuff. How many things do I have to deal with? Yeah, I totally get you. Exactly. And I, I understand why these companies don't want to use contact. Uh, it makes sense to me. They want control. They want to be able to sculpt the interface. They don't want native instruments wrapper around their thing. Like, I get that. I, I totally understand that. Um, but anyway, so I, I, I actually have a fairly positive report to give the experience. And I do think that both Opus is pretty cool as a player, and it might be a worthwhile upgrade, uh, especially at the discount rate for anyone who's used the old school Hollywood orchestra. And um, the appeal of Opus is that, um, subjectively speaking, everything seems to load a lot faster. Mm. Like, I know they're putting this in their advertising, and I was a little skeptical but uh, Hollywood strings in the old days used to be a real sluggish experience, just loading anything. And it got better when I switched to SSDs, but it, not perfect. My, my subjective impression is everything loads up very zippily in Opus. And this is one of those quantitative things that ends up being a qualitative thing, because if loading becomes fast, then you feel like your sounds are accessible in a way that psychologically they don't feel accessible if there's a 15-second delay or a 30-second delay to load something. And if you imagine your actual mindset in the middle of a project, you're typically thinking, okay, I need a clarinet sound now. You don't want to sit there and painstakingly compare five or six you know, different options. And um, I find that, that that makes me disinclined to do a lot of waiting for things. But in Opus, like the, whether I was loading the new instruments or just loading the old school, I mean, the, the Opus will support all the old um, East-West libraries. So you can load up the symphonic orchestra instruments from 2008, whenever those came out. So everything's there. Uh, the only thing you can't load are the non-Opus versions of Hollywood Orchestra. And so, so basically, you can load anything that East-West makes, but if you're using Opus, and you want to use Hollywood Orchestra, you need to actually pay for the upgrade to that. Uh, another thing that's really cool is you get a preview. Uh, if you're looking at the, let me give you a visual. So like in all of these systems, there's usually some browsing facility, your, your standard hierarchy of you know, strings and substrings, and it's whatever it is. Uh, you're looking at a folder interface. Uh, and eventually when you drill down, you get to patches or sounds or articulations, whatever the particular player calls them. In Opus, if you click on a sound, you actually hear it. Like you get a, an instant sample of what that thing sounds like. So if it's a pitched instrument, obviously they're going to pick a note. You know, they're not going to play every single note in the flute's range that your digital flute can play. But it is surprisingly good for giving you a quick idea of what that thing is. That's really cool. It, it is. And I don't know why. It's a little bit like, you know, if you've got a synth... Uh, a digital synth. Typically, switching between patches is very, very fast because all you're really doing is swapping around settings in whatever the algorithm is for generating audio. Or maybe there's a little bit of sample data, but not a lot. So it kind of feels instantaneous and you can bounce around from sound to sound. This, in Opus, it kind of feels like that because you can preview things. And what I found was very handy about that was the library uh, Dark Side. 
which is a, a processed electroacoustic library, a lot of weird sounding guitars, uh, keyboards, things that sort of sound like things, but also sound like other things. And this is exactly the kind of library where, where instant preview is useful, because if you've got you know, 20 processed drums, you do not want to painstakingly go through and load each one to hear what it sounds like. But if you can just quickly tap the name and then get like the sound of a snare, you kind of go, oh, I got it. That's that sound. It really transforms the process of sound selection. Uh, I'm, and it makes me feel, to touch back on what I said earlier, like I have access to my sounds. Like it's not this agonizing wait as I jump from patch to patch. It's so, it seems obvious, but it's a really, really handy thing. And it made my old East-West libraries now feel accessible in a way that they never did. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, it's actually kind of amazing that we're thinking about this as a new thing because I'm really reminded of my experience just quickly scrolling through different patches on my Roland synths back in the 90s. And you had that option of just pushing in the volume knob and it would play this little sample of what that patch sounds like. And I'm realizing how much I miss that. Just that little sample snippet telling you what that patch sounds like, but also suggesting what it would be useful for. Um, you know, if, if I'm messing around with the variety of piano patches on a rompler, um, and I, I'm not sure what why I should choose one piano over the other, but maybe I push in the volume knob and it starts playing this thing that sounds kind of, um, you know, old timey, uh, you know, 1910, 1920s, uh, kind of entertainment piano. Um, and I'm realizing now how much I would love to have that with any of the players that I have right now. This is obviously not a feature on the contact library stuff that I that makes up most of my template, but I would love to have something like this. This is making me really interested in East West actually. And this was not on my radar. I hadn't read about this previously. Yeah. It had the effect that I think East West wanted it to have because I, I said, Oh, it's so easy to load libraries and preview them now. And they load so quickly. It made me aware of East West, East West libraries that I owned that I kind of forgotten about like, Oh, I do have Storm Drum 2 and 3, and I haven't really touched them in a while, and that seems like a shame. And giving me that ability to just load and browse and preview quickly just, I, I hate to use the phrase game changer, so let's just say game alterer in a significant way. Uh, I, I really, if any other sample manufacturer is listening, please do this. It's so helpful. It's something that was probably technologically possible in 1985. Just do this. It's it's so useful in ways you wouldn't expect. Uh, even when you've got a, a a sound whose category allows you to, I, to identify what it sounds like, like orchestral instruments, you know what violins sound like, you know what flutes sound like. And even though you're going to get a note somewhere in the middle of the range, so obviously can't be representative of the whole spectrum of the instrument, it's still really useful because knowing that it's, oh, it's that flute with that sound versus that flute with that sound. I guess I'm just repeating what you said, but yeah, super useful. That's awesome. Other stuff that's cool, um, easy access to different articulations, which has always been, I don't know if they did this in play six, but I know for years people were asking for that in play and you can add articulations, you can reassign them to key switches, stuff that every sample player should have. East West now also has. And really good access to automation parameters. You can add, you can, you can change them, you can set them to whatever um, MIDI uh, controllers that you like. Again, this is stuff that I feel like is catch-up in a way, where East-West is just coming to match what everyone else is already offering. But the uh, placement of those elements in the interface is excellent. Everything's really clear. Everything's super easy to access. And again, if you're applying this to your older East-West libraries, you get the benefit of the new interface. So now you can, if you like, find that East-West tends to turn on reverb by default and you don't want it to be on by default, you could then go up to an old library, you know, anything that doesn't have reverb burnt into the sound and set turn off reverb to MIDI controller 62. And then, you know, you could unify everything to match your workflow. That's really cool. 
Yeah, this stuff is pedestrian, but it really matters. Yeah. So the last thing I'll mention, and I think this is only applicable to the new sounds, like the stuff that's Opus branded. Um, I haven't quite explored this, but definitely with the Hollywood Orchestra, there are now what they call moods. And there are three of them for every instrument. And I think it's uh, classic, soft, and epic. And each mood is simply a packaging of mic selection, relative mic levels, reverb, and some other parameters that may be idiosyncratic to a particular instrument. So for the strings, the soft mood, I think, turns on uh, concertino, for example. But the, the main effect is that they are, of the five or six mics that are available in Hollywood Orchestra, they pick a few and they level match them in a way that they think makes sense. And then they put on some reverb. And uh, the effect is actually startling. It's, it's the difference between, like, I, I played with Hollywood Harp, because that's one of the things I've been able to download so far. And the difference between the standard harp and then the soft mood harp and then the epic mood harp is so striking that you really feel like you're getting three different instruments and a very different character and perceived distance from the listener. Hmm. Uh, so all of a sudden, I feel like I'm getting more out of a library I already owned. What's also nice, and this is completely psychological, but I think it's cool, each mood changes the color of the interface so that if you're in epic mood, it's red now. And it seems silly, but it actually helps you identify at a glance what it is you're, you're hearing. So the actual work that's being done is not anything you couldn't do with the play edition of Hollywood Orchestra, right? You could set the mic positions to X, Y, and Z, and you could change the levels of the mics, and you could dial the reverb. But by making these packages of, of settings, giving them names and giving them really big buttons on the interface, they're accessible in a way that I think nobody would have had time for in, in the old days. Like if I'm in the middle of a project, I'm not going to be like, let me load up the violins and try five different combinations of mic placements, right? Like very few people have that kind of freedom to explore in the middle of a project. And when you're outside of a project, you're not always motivated to try 50 combinations of microphones and because you don't really know what you're, what kind of sound you're looking for, right? So to have these three meta settings immediately available, it's again, it's surprisingly valuable in a way that I hadn't anticipated. And it makes you feel like you're getting more instruments than you actually own. Because, you know, epic cello and standard classic cello and soft cello really feel very different. So I'm really excited to hear the effects of these settings on the other members of the Hollywood Orchestra as I eventually succeed in downloading them. That sounds really fantastic. Uh, I, I am looking at these moods right now and I think, wow, I would love to actually, you know, frame the way that I interact with an instrument in that particular way. Uh, and it seems really cool. Classic, soft, and epic mood, huh? I'd say they're comparable to what uh, CineSamples offers, where they give you like a couple of meta settings, like close, dry. Um, I forget the others, but you know, most of the orchestral libraries, they will just package together mic settings and other stuff, and they'll just put a button that lets you jump between it. This is a little bit like that, but I think it also bundles in maybe EQ and some some baked in reverb settings. Okay, yeah, this looks really cool. I don't have any libraries that actually have some uh, some sort of analog to this. If anything, I remember these various documents on the Spitfire help shift where they would talk about different types of mic settings for the different orchestral libraries that they have, suggesting, oh, you probably want to put these mics down and these mics up if you want this more upfront Hollywood sound versus this more intimate sound here. Um, and it does make me wonder why couldn't that have been packaged into the instrument itself? Because it's literally just changing a couple of sliders or loading and unloading um, one or more of the many mic positions that are already on offer in the instrument. But uh, yeah, this seems really, really cool what you just described. I think the three giant buttons is actually really important. Even though it seems silly, it seems like training wheels on a bike, you know, it's, it's help you don't need. But having them available and having the visual reinforcement in terms of the color change, again, it seems silly, but I think it's surprisingly practical. 
And I'm pretty sure that Spitfire, if you look at their contact-based instruments, I think they have some kind of preset system that lets you load up combinations of mics, but it's it's buried so deeply into the interface that I forget it exists. And again, in the throes of a deadline, I don't necessarily have the confidence to go in and start messing around with that. Whereas three big buttons with colors, yeah, I'm all about that. And that feels very workflow compatible. Yeah, that, that is really funny. I think when I was first looking at this, I might have, in fact, been poo-pooing it, wondering, oh, why should soft and classic be buttons the exact same size as something like legato versus portamento type articulation? And I was like, ooh, that seems absolutely silly. But hearing you describe it, it actually makes a lot more sense. That's very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I'd say check it out and see what you think. Um, whether or not it's worth the upgrade for Hollywood Orchestra depends on whether you have Hollywood Orchestra. But if you do have Hollywood Orchestra, um, I think it might be worth taking advantage of the sale and grabbing this just to see how it revitalizes tools that you already own. Yeah, this sale does look quite good. Certainly at the upgrade prices, I'm looking at them and upgrade pricing of either 99 or 295, depending on which version of Hollywood Orchestra you have. So that actually seems really, really quite cool. And and you haven't even mentioned any of the new recordings. It's talking about how there's over 130 gigs worth of new recordings. Um, I'd be really interested to hear what you think about new instruments. I have to rely mostly on the reviews that I've read because I haven't successfully downloaded the new ones yet. Uh, I know there's a new uh, violins, uh, first violin sound that's supposed to be very good. They've created some new content in the form of, um, I think, duple combinations, like two, uh, two trumpets, two trombones, stuff like that. There are some three wind patches, which have never been my favorite sound, three winds in unison, mm -hmm. um, but they are there. I think... This is, again, hearsay from reviews, but I believe they may have improved the programming of the, the existing legato instruments, which honestly I would find very welcome. I found some of the original Hollywood uh, woodwinds in particular, the legato, legato programming was so clumsy as I would actually not use the legato patch. I would just get a sus patch and put on monophonic mode instead. So uh, I look forward to see if they've revisited some of those old sounds and made the programming as good as the actual sonics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the programming always seems to be the Achilles heel that's mentioned, not just in regards to East-West, but really every orchestral library is out there. When people talk about these instruments, Spitfire, East-West, uh, you know, Cinesamples, inevitably someone will mention, oh, the programming on this particular instrument really needs to be improved, or I'm hearing such and such notes that really should have been done differently, et cetera, et cetera. So, oh, I mean, I'm excited to actually try this out. I've subscribed to East West in the past, and then I ended up not going that route, and I ended up adding on to my library of stuff. But I think I would have fun checking this out. Previously, I was thinking that the orchestrator might actually be a fun thing to mess with, uh, just to see how they actually treat different things, what exactly is the workflow like for this. But now hearing you talk about these individual instruments, just something like being able to quickly preview the sound of each of these instruments sounds really awesome. That sounds like it would just be a fun day of doing that. Yeah, it is great to just jump through your collection and hear all these things that you'd forgotten about or didn't feel like it was worth waiting 15 seconds to load to find out what something sounds like. So just such a huge ergonomic win, if nothing else. Yeah. Ooh, workflow. You know, the, uh, the distinction between programming and sound is interesting when you think of a historical perspective. Uh, you and I are old enough to remember the earliest, well, I think you were, you were working kind of in the, the Roland 760 era. Am I right? Um, I was... Ex I did have some experience with that while I was in college. You know, we had the rack with uh, S760s. We had some Akai samplers. Uh, we were recording some of that stuff onto ADAT. Yep. So, you know, actual tapes. Not We're not just dealing with light pipe everywhere. We actually had super VHS tapes that we had to record that stuff onto. The, the funny thing is how samples used to be like a, a, a sampled instrument in the day. And I don't mean the good old days. I just mean the old days. 
was what we would consider now to be a single sample of a single articulation of a single dynamic. So if you loaded up strings on a Roland S760, um, that's probably a bad example because the 760 had a fairly sophisticated yeah. for the time system. But for many, many samplers, you were just getting a sample at a dynamic and you could pitch adjust it to play higher pitches. But it wasn't the same thing as getting multi-samples and sampling each note on the piano. And as time has gone on, we've moved more and more towards virtual instruments really having essentially AI and many, many configurable parameters. But uh, there's certainly something to be said for the days of, of outboard gear and um, simpler systems for their simplicity, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. The, the AI thing, I think that really is true. Sometimes it's so complex that it's really quite difficult to predict what exactly the sound will be. Uh, I've actually found myself fighting sometimes with the indeterminacy of some of these modern instruments. Um, I'll do a run with violins. And that run actually has some weirdness that may or may not play back depending on, uh, on, on when I hit the button. Is there some weird seed that goes into it where it's not actually fully deterministic? It, it's not going to play the exact same sample the exact same time for this particular note here. Um, sometimes that stuff is really frustrating to deal with. And I often find myself just turning on my, my rack of gear, my rack of Roland and Emu synths from the late 90s, early 2000s, where you give it a MIDI note, it will spit out uh, a sound, and it is utterly predictable and easy to deal with, actually. Uh, it sounds certainly not modern, certainly not authentic or realistic, but it is something that I can deal with. <laughs> it, it's really funny thinking about that, considering many of these romplers will have 16, 32, 64 megabytes actually devoted to their whole sound set. And an individual instrument in a modern orchestral library, uh, like 64 megabytes might be how much data is actually allocated for an individual note in that instrument. It, it's really crazy that I still rely on my rack gear. Huh, that's interesting. Where, where do you find it most useful? Well, sometimes, for example, things like string runs. Uh, string runs can actually sound good when they're messy. And uh, there are a lot of instruments that try to make uh, string runs actually sound really good. Um, let's see. If we're thinking about modern libraries and instruments, cinematic strings and cinematic studio strings are pretty well done instruments, but not perfect. Uh, cinematic strings was a really awesome orchestral string library from the mid 2010s. And then that was superseded by cinematic strings, uh, cinematic studio strings back in the late 2010s, I think 2018 or so. And, they actually did a lot of interesting programming tricks when it came to making the sound of a big uh, run up and down the scale. Uh, and it would basically combine different recordings of different notes and different articulations based on how much overlap you actually had from the previous note. And if you slow things down and actually analyze the waveform, or if you just listen to it very carefully, you can tell what's going on. It's playing things like uh, legato patch, uh, marcato samples, a little bit of half trill in order to add the uncertainty or inaccuracy of the pitch as you are actually playing these notes. And it will do those things in a not fully deterministic way which can actually be great. Sometimes you have a sound that is fantastic and sometimes you don't and you're not quite sure whether you get the right sound until after you render the wave file. 
I've been actually dealing with this lately because I'm dealing with this analog gear where I do have to print. And I, I find myself thinking, wait a minute, those strings don't sound quite so right. I'm going to hit play again and let's see what happens. Um, that lack of predictability has been kind of frustrating. And then I'll go back to doing some of the tricks that these contact libraries are doing, except I'm doing it with these older synths that I've got. I'm doing it with my Roland 5080 and my Roland 1080 with the orchestral strings and seeing what that sounds like. And it turns out that those tricks, uh, except I am doing I am doing that MIDI programming by myself, just notating it with with MIDI, with CCs, and allowing that to do something that is fully deterministic and utterly predictable. That I find really, really reliable. <laughs> I, I love my old romplers. I can trust them to, to do that thing. Sometimes in a way that the more advanced libraries can't because sometimes the AI might do something that is not deterministic. It's really interesting. And I had never thought of that as an argument for keeping old school external romplers or, or other gear around. But now that you mention it, um, you're right, indeterminacy can be a feature that turns into a bug. And I, I too have had a situation where I feel like my virtual plug-in instrument was giving me a performance in the same way that a human being would, and I might need to play again to get a different take, even though it was the same MIDI data and the same plugin, just because of the indeterminacy uh, built into the system. So, uh, which is which is kind of an odd way that AI might be unintentionally emulating human beings. But to fall back on like a, a 1080, uh, because you know what you're going to get every time, that's that's kind of interesting. And it's it's um, it, I hadn't expected that as part of your answer. Uh, are there other aspects of having the old school gear around that you find useful? I, I think sometimes it's just easier to get the mix right. Um, especially if I'm not necessarily doing things in that big realistic orchestral context. So, uh, all right, what am I doing? It's going to be a small combo, a, a Rhodes piano, um, a drum kit, a bass, pads. It, it all sort of just goes together really well inside of my one or two Roland romplers. Um, and I don't have to worry. It's actually easier to go through those patches uh, than it is to have to load up individual contact instruments for for these things. Like, do I really need to have my multi-gigabyte Scarby bass, for example? It's a great bass instrument. It is utterly programmable. And if I'm doing things where that bass needs to be able to shine and I want those bass slides to be really nice and precise and robust and and all that stuff, sure, I'll load that instrument. But do I necessarily need that for this particular track? Likely not. So I'll just do everything with the Roland. And once I get my composition down and the mix is basically there, it's already mixed for me by virtue of being played by the same instrument or the same instrument, at least the same instrument family when it comes to these two Roland synths, Correct. then I can just focus on making the master sound good. Huh. That, uh, I mean, that does. I have I have distant memories of using all these devices, and it kind of fits in with those memories. I never felt like I had to struggle to mix the instruments in my 1080 when I was using it multi-timbrely, and maybe some of that was because there was no real options. Like there were no compressors. You know, there's no real way to uh, impact the the contents of the signal path, other than maybe there might have been reverb. I don't remember. Maybe not. Um, but yeah, everything did kind of sit well with, with each other. All the instruments did kind of, uh, they felt compatible with each other in a way that instruments from competing sophisticated sample libraries do not always. Yeah, definitely. It sometimes takes some work for me to get my Roland playing with my emus. It, it, that I do need to do some mix work. Uh, the outputs are a little bit different, the way that they treat particular patches is a little bit different, but often if I'm just doing certain things with the emu, like I was, I resigned the emu to working with these harmonic uh, beds and pads and whatnot. Okay, that's actually pretty straightforward, pretty easy. Uh, 
but even then, uh, I actually did some tracks for Alex a couple months back, and I was playing around with stuff that was all Emu Proteus 2000. And if I'm just doing that, everything fits together in a nice way. Everything is sort of cognizant of the programming and the decisions that were made in the patch programming for other instruments within the Emu family. So everything just works. And I don't have to spend as much time mixing. It's it's great. That does sound like a nice change of pace. Yeah. I, I've been trying to tell other people about this because a lot of these hardware romplers are just not that expensive these days. And for as much as people like to focus on the cool stuff, hey, we've got this big orchestral library, or hey, there's this awesome acoustic guitar library. Um, there are a lot of people out there that struggle with just having a nice, large, varied bed of general instruments that can be used for a variety of music production. And I like to encourage those guys to look at what's available on places like e eBay and Reverb because it's actually very easy to get something like a Roland Emu Korg Rompler and uh, get it working with their DAW. It's, it's really not that hard to do that sort of stuff. Uh, I think there are a lot of people that are just scared away because they've been used to being able to right-click, add a VST, and, and there you go. It is slightly more inconvenient than that, but really not much more than um, being able to send a couple of specific MIDI commands right at the beginning of the track. And in fact, there are actually some really cool free plugins that are useful if you want to make your rompler as easy to address as a plugin. So Reaper, which is my particular DAW of choice, actually also provides a plugin pack that includes many of Reaper's built-in plugins. Um, they're all VSTs, so you don't have to be a Reaper user if you're using Digital Performer or Cubase or whatnot. You can download these plugins for free from Reaper's website. They have a plugin called ReControl MIDI. And with this plugin, you can basically load up instrument definition files for lots of different instruments. So, and uh, these things will be for things like Roland JV-1080 or XV-5080 or Proteus 2000. And with a very simple interface, you can just click a couple places on the plugin window change the program and bank, and it has all the default patches that are on those romplers. So you want to do 000 XV Grand Piano? Sure. If you want to get a dulcimer, you can do that. If you want to do the, the really big lush XV strings, you can do that. And it's all accessible via this plugin. And all you had to do was download an instrument definition file so that it knows what's actually on the other end of the MIDI cable. The funny thing is I remember hand, like back in my hybrid days, meaning when I still had some outboard synth gear, including the 1080, uh, but I was using you know an early version of Logic. I remember manually typing in the patches so that I have that same functionality, that I'd be able to dial in a patch on my outboard gear and Logic would send like a MIDI patch change message. Uh, so very cool that... Uh, current generations who want to have this retro experience don't have to go through that same agony. Oh, yeah. I think that is one of the the most difficult things uh, because, yeah, you can do that stuff manually. All right, what's the the MSB, LSB, uh, you know, what other information do I have to set here? Do I need to send some sysx at the beginning on playback, et cetera, et cetera? And this free plugin allows you to do that right off the bat. Uh, bank and program changes, sysx. If you want to do some other things on start of playback, you can. Uh, and otherwise, it gives you a very simple interface, which is not all that dissimilar than what's on modern libraries, at least from a functionality standpoint. 
you know, obviously it's not super pretty with uh, 24-bit color images of of your instruments, uh, but it's super functional and easy, and it's really nice to be able to do that. My romplers are actually in a different room, and they feed into my interface in this room with ADAT, which is great. Uh, but I never actually have to touch mm. the front panel of the Romplers. I just use this plugin, and everything works smoothly. Now let's take this analogy a little further. Um, Roland, as part of their Roland Cloud service, has a number of emulated uh, plugin emulated versions of these hardware boxes. Uh, in fact, for one hundred twenty nine dollars, you can get a virtual JV ten eighty. So I wonder now, like, what is the difference sonically? Uh, like, you're already abstracting away the hardware interface for your 1080 by, or your other gear by putting it in another room and controlling it entirely through Reaper, if I understand correctly. Yep. Like, in your mind, you know that that is actually a patch change message going through physical wires into a physical box in another room, and that box is providing sound in return. So what is the difference between that experience and getting the $129 JV10A any emulator by Roland? So presumably it's as legit as these things get. Um, I wonder if some of the sonic qualities you were alluding to, the, the kind of the ease in which all these sounds coexist mix-wise, I wonder if that quality is also preserved or if that really is endemic to the physical hardware and the production of sound through analog circuits and all the imprecisions and stuff like that that happens as a side effect. Have you ever played with any of the Roland emulations of their own gear? I have. And I think that they are actually very, very close. Uh, quite honestly, I think I would be hard-pressed to choose which is the digital versus physical version, or even which was the better version. And um, I've seen other people on YouTube say similarly, that there are some subtle differences that exist between what is available on the Roland Cloud versus their actual physical box in front of them. Um, I, I think for me, you know, the fact that I do have this physical box in front of me, it, it's really nice. There are a couple times when I actually like to use my physical box without the computer as an intermediary. You know, since I do like playing with the Ewe, for example, I can just MIDI straight in there and and play stuff as as desired, and I don't actually have to boot up my computer. So that's a nice thing. Uh, but in terms of sonic quality, I think it is very close. Uh, and there are actually some YouTube demonstrations out there that uh, demonstrate it for a variety of instruments. Uh, you know, if you do have the Roland Cloud, I think that's cool. I think that what's available in terms of JV and XV for the Roland Cloud is is quite good too. And um, I suppose there is something to being able to quickly fast render all of your tracks from these synths. But I guess I'm also really uh, started going into this further analog realm of processing and running through this outboard gear, the aforementioned uh, master bus converter. Like, okay, that, that's one part of it. I think there are some other things that I'm going to deal with too. So things are inevitably going to get recorded and processed. So that that is kind of the track that I've set out for myself. There really is an interesting analogy uh, between both of these questions, which is your your Rupert Neve magic box and the advantages it offers by being a physical box that exists in the analog realm. Uh, and analogously, wow, that was so meta, it actually made me dizzy for a second. And similarly, the, uh, the physical JV 1080 and what it offers above an emulation, particularly if the physicality of the device is abstracted away by being thrown in a closet. So uh, it's an interesting distinction. And uh, I think software emulations are getting closer and closer to the sonic equivalents of their hardware forebears. But there will always be a ergonomic and usability 
uh, distinction in physical hardware uh, along the lines of it always being on and always being available. And something, as you say, you can just plug your EWI controller into and jam without having to load something and turn something on and, and go through all these processes on a computer. And uh, at least right now, I think there's definitely arguments to be made for that ergonomic aspect of, of uh, out-of-the-box hardware. Mm-hmm, yeah. I think we're living in a great time now where we can actually pick and choose so many options. I think it would be a really quite different if we were having this conversation four or five years ago. And Roland Cloud, I think, was just being conceived, and they weren't even thinking about stuff like their older uh, legacy gear. They were so focused on the future. Hey, this Terra piano and Terra guitar, let's make uh, terabytes of sample data available over the cloud so that people can render their tracks with the utmost fidelity. But uh, I think there's so much more to that. And I'm really glad that the Roland cloud has actually expanded to cover not just the new stuff, but also the old stuff and the current stuff. Like they're actually doing a really good job of paralleling what's going on with their modern physical gear. Um, I'm an EWI player, and so I've been very much aware of what Roland is doing with their competing Aerophone, and I'm super excited about it. That thing offers this um, the synthesis engine on board their device, and they actually have software that uh, mirrors the entire functionality of the Aerophone, as well as allows movement back and forth of different patches and sharing of, of that in a way that is just typically not possible between disparate devices. Uh, okay, you have this thing that is ostensibly a performance instrument. You don't need to edit stuff on there, right? No, we can edit stuff on there and it's great. And you can do it with the Roland Xenology stuff. And there's editing uh, there's also crossover between the Xenology software stuff as well as other Xenology hard hardware that you can purchase or other people might have. They have hardware synths that are focused more on the keyboard rather than wind instrumentalists, and they can share stuff. So I think Roland, we've poo-pooed them in the past for how they've been dealing with their Roland cloud strategy. But I think that they're doing some really cool stuff right now with offering uh, sounds of the past with very high fidelity, um, sounds of the future in terms of things that are only possible in the digital world, and mirroring what's going on with their very significant hardware development and making sure that everyone can talk to each other and sharing all these patches back and forth, whether it be synth or sample-based or, or whatnot. It, it's really quite cool. So both a wonderful and terrible time to be working in music uh, composition production because there are so many options. And in the old days, you had whatever mixing console, physical mixing console you had. And today you can have either that or any number of emulations. And uh, the same now applies to instrumentation as well. And the, the, the beauty is that there's so many things available, and the danger is the time you might spend deciding which thing to take and which thing to use, be it alternatives in the same category of sample instrument or this gulf of physical analog hardware versus emulation that we've been talking about throughout this whole episode. Uh, composers need to be responsible, I think, to their workflow, and they need to preserve their time, and they need to be willing to commit to a tool set rather than forever feeling the pull of something else. And that takes discipline and bravery. Uh, but if you can impose that kind of, you know, with Rorschach-like willpower, impose order on chaos, uh, the, the amount of tools and the number of options available today are, um, you know, our cup runneth over. So it's a wonderful time. Yeah, very well said. Um, we've been going at this for a while, so maybe we should go and let's see. <laughs> and speaking of uh, speaking of time management, <laughs> yeah, maybe we should uh, leave that conversation and go to conspicuous consumption. 
Have you been playing or consuming any media lately? Yes, but it's embarrassing. Um, and it's so embarrassing because it shows how stodgy I can be. So I've my my all-time favorite game, I think, at this point of any genre is probably Civilization V. Not six, but five. And for an embarrassing number of years, I was stuck in the middle of the three expansions, which was the Gods and Kings expansion. And I just stuck with it because it was familiar and comfortable and um, simpler than the Brave New World expansion that would come. I mean, I think we're talking about something that was released in like 2014. So this is definitely not cutting edge. And I finally made that leap. I started playing Brave New World, putting me at the forefront of the prior generation of Civilization games. And it's a lot of fun. I've been trying to get back onto the bleeding edge or at least what is considered the modern mobile game. Uh, I, you know, it's very, very hard to keep up with just how many mobile games are getting released on a week-to-week or even a day-to-day basis. So I'm actually really surprised at myself to have been, to start playing a couple of mobile games within a few weeks of them getting released. Uh, so there's this one that just came out this month called Punishing Gray Raven, which is a very fun action game that really wouldn't look out of place on something like the PlayStation 4, except it's running on my, you know, my iPad. It, it looks really cool. You're just beating guys up and there's uh, a very silly or... um very vague, uh, let's see, very obtuse black box of a storyline that promises to reveal more details if you keep on pumping time into it. And maybe it might go a little bit faster if you engage in some of those microtransactions. I'm going to try not to do that. But it's a pretty cool game on iOS. There's also another game that's really interesting called Girl Cafe Gun. Or is it Girl Gun Cafe. I can't remember, but those three words definitely are in the title. Um, Girl Cafe Gun. And that is, in fact, what you're doing in the game. Uh, You are seeing all these cute girls in the Japanese anime style, and they are engaged in two things. One, running a cafe, and two, gunning down hordes of robot enemies. Uh, It's kind of fun uh kind of silly and this game also came out just this month uh it it plays pretty well it looks pretty good on an ipad Uh, it's still strikes me as weird to be playing games that play this well and look this good on a small screen but i'm trying to you know get familiar with all the coolest stuff and most recent stuff that's happening in the mobile game world what is your ipad of choice Well, I did just get an iPad Air. Um, It's not the most recent one, but it was the hot stuff back last year. So pretty modern hardware, not the very latest, but it's good enough to play all these games with the highest fidelity or the highest graphic setting. Um, It's really quite nice, although it's taken me a while to get used to not having a physical home button on the bottom in order to get back to the menu. I have to do that that swipe up motion. Uh, But it's actually really nice. I have this thing for consuming media. I still have my old iPad. I actually have an iPad 2 from 2011. Wow. That I still use for MIDI programming. So... uh, you know, Touch OSC is actually a fantastic app that works on all of these old iOS devices. And I can send my MIDI data courtesy of a couple of apps, Touch OSC, as I previously mentioned, as well as NetMIDI. And I can send MIDI over the network. It's great. It's fun. Uh, very easy to create different interfaces and switch between them for if I want to a special type of interface if I want to live track a particular instrument that needs more than just an XY pad. Uh, Those old iPads are great, but I am using my new iPad to check out modern mobile gaming. I also have the iPad Air, and I think it's great. And I was 
theoretically downgrading from a prior gen iPad Pro and I don't miss whatever it is that I gave up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My my wife, she actually has a 2017 iPad Pro. I don't think I'm giving up anything. If anything, it feels like an improvement on pretty much every every category. The display is great. The power is great. The battery life is great. So yeah, I'm not really an Apple person. I do all of my main music work on a Windows machine. But uh, I mean, having an iDevice as a supplement to, to that is just fantastic. We're going to slowly pull you onto the Apple side of things. I can feel it. <laughs> no, nah, not yet. Uh, honestly, I hear too many stories about the differences and uh, the waiting game that needs to be played with every individual piece of software when Apple does a big OS uh, update. Hey, d don't upgrade to Big Sur yet because such and such drivers, such and such, such and such software, et cetera, et cetera. It does make me very happy that I am a Windows user. We'll see. We'll revisit this topic from time to time and see how your attitudes maintain themselves or fail to over the course of the years. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely. It is a worthwhile conversation, that, and something that uh, you'll have to wrestle with after you've been in this space for as long as um, as long as we have, I guess. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Game Audio Hour. Uh, if you like what you've heard, feel free to give us a rating or, or a review on the various places where you could find us. Places like Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. Um, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you are welcome to. We are at Game Audio Hour. Um, and over there, we will do updates on when the next episode drops. So... This has been episode 212 of the Game Audio Hour. We will see you next time. Bye. See you next time. We can't really do the wave.